Welcome to another episode of 30 Minutes with DailyStraits.com. This is your host, June Romley. Our guest today is Sydney-based psychiatrist, Dr. Lisa Myers. Dr. Lisa is a South African-born, Australian-trained child and adolescent psychiatrist with 20 years of mental health experience. With Mental Health Awareness Month kicking off in October, Dr. Lisa Myers' timely new book, When the Light Goes Off, out, sorry, showcases life experience and expert advice, both key factors to managing the ever-growing mental health crisis. Lisa's book will provide readers with practical tools and strategies for managing their own mental health. In this courageous memoir, Dr. Lisa skillfully combines her own story of unimaginable violence and suffering together with clients' experience and professional insights to help guide readers facing their own challenges, whether to be a major trauma or everyday adversity. Our chat with Dr. Lisa today is going to revolve around her book and other matters related to mental health. Without further ado, let's invite Dr. Lisa to the show. Thank you so much, Dr. Lisa, for being with us today. How are you? Good, June. Thanks for having me. Awesome. We're going to dive right into the question. So um, basically, let's get back to the basics. Why did you decide to pen this book? Right. June, I always wanted to write a book. I wanted to write a book to share more knowledge about mental health. Um, my frustration was sitting in the office. I can work really well one-on-one -on -one with many of my clients. Mm -hmm. But I would see, you know, out there, so many people needing help. We have long wait lists. I wanted to provide more of what I'm doing in the room, sharing it with other people. And also, I thought if I can provide a, a story from my side, as well as share some of my personal experiences, um, then I could hopefully remove some of the stigma that surrounds mental health, showing that you know, as the expert, I also have my mental health to manage and life challenges to manage just like other people. And by sharing that and how I manage it, how I help other clients manage it, um, it would hopefully normalize those sorts of things and encourage other people to speak up about their own struggles. So that was always the purpose of writing a book. When I started the book, that was the purpose. And then as I write about in the book, my father was um, was killed in South Africa, or at least that's what I believe. I, I explain in the book, it wasn't really certain what happened to my dad. It was just all very traumatic, and it, it obviously wasn't part of my plan. Um, as life, you know, throws things at you, you're not expecting. Um, and... I had to manage that trauma and I had to manage my grief and it really overtook much of life at that time as it does. Um, and so that became also very much the focus of, of what I wanted to write about. Awesome. So how long have you been working on writing this book? Because I understand you're still, you know, full-time and uh, working on your business, uh, being a psychiatrist full-time. So writing a book is no walk in the park. So how did you find the time to write the book? I don't know. <laughs> no, I um, 
Um, and also trying, uh, besides work, um, you know, there's the parenting and everything. Um, but I suppose I found the writing quite therapeutic. So that time was very much um, also time for me to process what was going on. And I suppose I'm someone who's always into, you know, being organized, having a diary. I very much believe in, in planning. So I think once we have a plan, then we tend to be able to fit more things in. So I suppose making time for these within my diary, within my structure, within my day, it took me about four hour, four years to get this done. Um, it'll be four years now that my father um, passed away. So, and I had the help of a mentor and my publisher, Joanne Fedler. So Joanne really kept me accountable. I met with her every month. And I think that's another great way to get things done. I, I had to meet with her. So I had to get some stuff done to deliver to her every month. And then we would meet and we would talk about the material. And it would give me a chance to process, to step back, to have a look at what I'd written, what I wanted to write, what was the message I wanted to get across. Um, and I suppose that's how I eventually got it done. Okay, so the book is very well written. It's like a novel. And it also exposes your side, your vulnerable side. You've like told a lot of personal stories. Mm. And also, I just wanted to find out, right, um, from yourself, like what would uh, someone get when they read this book? Like, you know, when you read this book, like, what do you inspire them to, or what do you uh, aim for them to get out of the book? I think the feedback that I get from a lot of people is it allows them to feel very comfortable to talk about their own struggles. So that's the first thing. And I think it helps everybody feel really quite normal in what they're experiencing in their daily life. And so I've covered multiple topics that many people would relate to. And that's what a lot of people say to me. I, I relate to a lot of what you talk about in the book, Lisa. You know, there would be many people who have struggled when having a child with postnatal issues. There would be many people who have had relationships break down or marriages break down. There would be many people who have struggled losing parents or relatives, either natural causes or traumatic causes, unexpected causes. So I've covered many things that I believe a lot of people will relate to because they are the daily struggles we all face and there are the struggles that people come to me to deal with. So I've threaded through the book also client stories of trauma and of managing adversity in the hope again that others will see that they are not alone in what they're going through. I also believe what I've done there is really try and share my approach, my thinking. Um, not that I say that's that's the only way or the right way or the best way. I'm very clear that that's my way or how I approach things and based on my own experiences, my knowledge, my own therapy, my experience as a psychiatrist, but also as a 
a mum and a daughter and a sister and a and a partner. So I believe that everybody who reads this book will get something out of it because no one out there does not struggle with some aspect of their life. And I talk even about growing up in a family where there was, um, I, I had a mum who'd had a lot of her own trauma and I had to move countries and you know, just so many different things that I believe many readers will relate to. Awesome. So what was the thinking? The book is very easy to read. I was expecting a very jargon kind of book. Mm -hmm. When I got it, it was so easy to read. It's like a novel. So what was the thinking behind that? Like, why did you make it so easy to read? Like, I suppose I was just being myself, telling a story. I had a story to tell. Also, I'm not a writer per se. I mean, I enjoy writing and I had a bit of help with the mentorship, but it's not my craft. Um, but I suppose nowadays it's also, you know, people don't have time. People are not really as interested in reading a lot. So it wasn't perhaps my intention to have it like that, but I do think the feedback is it's easy to read. It's very relatable. Um, most people tell me they read it in one go. Yeah. Uh, start to finish which in a way then I think oh my gosh is it not good enough you know it's, it's, it's sort of like reading a children's book or something I read it the whole, in one setting but I could only just do what I could do I can't be more of a writer than than I've been there and I suppose it it, it just really is me telling the story awesome Okay, uh, Dr. Lisa, let's move into your subject matter, your expertise, which is mental health. Okay, so as we all know, mental health is a very taboo subject. So, um, okay, for someone who wants to, how does someone spot the sign when someone is, um, uh, maybe their loved one or anyone like their friends is suffering from a severe bout of mental breakdown, but they haven't got help yet, but how do they spot the signs? I suppose saying mental breakdown, maybe we're referring to someone who's depressed or anxious or um, so there would be symptoms to these things, but there would also be duration and severity because all of us can have days where we feel like we're having a breakdown or we're depressed or we're overly stressed or anxious. So I suppose we've got to be careful sometimes. We don't want to medicalize what is normal, but if somebody is experiencing ongoing severe symptoms, um, low mood or lack of interest in life or thoughts of they want to hurt themselves or they don't want to be around anymore or feeling like a bad person, excessive guilt or overly worried, lots of physical symptoms of worry, difficulties with sleeping, difficulties with eating. So we would want to have symptoms. We would want to have them for a long time and they should be impacting because we can all have stress, we can all have a low mood, but it might not interfere with our ability to function on a daily basis. If it's starting to impact, then it probably needs a bit more help. So it might be impacting on your relationships, it might be impacting on your work or your ability to study or go to school or um, take care of yourself, get up, have a shower, get dressed, um, those sorts of basics so it could if it's interfering in areas of life 
you probably need a bit more help. Okay, doctor. So, um, okay, I'm, uh, many people are reluctant to say to see a shrink, if I may say that, mm. because uh, and talking through their problems. So right now, I see this very uh, frequently. People would rather go online and speak openly about their problems to a bunch of strangers. So this happens a lot on TikTok. They go on TikTok and they say, oh, I just got fired today or this happened to me today. And then they will try and get advice in from strangers on the comment sections. So um, could this be because uh, getting treatment for mental health services, especially in Australia, is it an expensive thing or is it because it's out of reach or people don't know enough about it? What's the what's the issue? Probably many. You, I am. I'm just thinking as you were talking there. It might be that there's less judgment when you're just telling a stranger something. It might feel safer than sitting in front of a professional who you feel is judging you or who's going to have some kind of um, opinion. And so, obviously, cost availability. We know the resources are short at the moment. Um, long waiting list so it's accessibility it's affordability and then it's comfort with that um and so i imagine these sorts of forums just being very easy to access i guess the the issue is the type of advice you're going to get and how tailored that might be to you and and so yes you couldn't get perhaps very helpful information but equally um it might not always be the best or it could just be agreeing with you or siding with you and actually not really pushing you or challenging you or helping you to see what are your blind spots and areas where you can really grow and that's what a professional is going to do they're going to look at the whole picture and hopefully give you a roadmap that considers really past and future and present and kind of tries to put it all together Okay, so um, what are the best ways that someone can get, uh, a, a, I beg your pardon, cheap counselling services if they suspect that they are suffering from mental health issues? Is there like, you know, there's a, for legal services, there's free, free legal services if you need uh, help, but is there free counselling services? There are services. I mean, depending on age, the government has headspace and, and other options like that. There are some NGOs that offer a lot of support. There are helplines and crisis lines that you can call if you're in real trouble, Lifeline, Kids Helpline. Um, there's usually a local mental health access line, so people can access these. Um, Medicare does cover therapy. So if you go to a GP, you can get a mental health plan and you can see a psychologist for up to 20 sessions a year. They might not charge you the Medicare rate. They might charge you an, an additional fee, but um, it is available. Also, many workplaces have um, EAPs, so employment employee access programs, universities, schools, they have counselling services, they have psychologists available. So there are these other areas where you can access some help. Um, there are some online resources that people can access, not necessarily a face-to-face -face counsellor, although there are some of those available. Um, they might not be very high-level experience, but you could have some kind of discussion with someone who 
who had some knowledge and was being supervised. Um, and then obviously engaging in online courses and, and other materials. But that's why also just reading a book where you can get a lot of helpful information might just be a, a starting point, help you to think about yourself, um, see where you're at, maybe think about things that could be useful um, for you, simple changes in your life that might be helpful. Okay, so you mentioned Medicare. So that's a good segue to our next question. So is Medicare doing enough in providing subsidized service for mental health treatment or does it need to do more? It does provide assistance. It has upped the sessions through the pandemic for psychology from 10 to 20 a year. Unfortunately, most providers charge more than the Medicare rate. And that is because the Medicare rate is probably too low if we look at it in comparison to other industries and other professionals. What psychologists or doctors, specialists can earn versus the accountant or the lawyer or the barrister of equal training or experience. So Medicare has also not done much to keep up with that. I think they made a recent increase of a dollar or something to some of our um, our um, item numbers and, and fees. But before that, I think the last time was about 10 years ago or something or, or more. So they're not really keeping up. And so what is happening is providers are charging bigger gaps and the client is, is struggling. They do have the safety net. So after a while, if you have been out of pocket a certain amount, they'll pay more back to the client. But a lot of people don't have those don't have those fees. And um, to find a service provider who will charge the Medicare rate is very hard because it is too low. Because the the, the provider still has to pay their staff, pay their rent, pay their software, pay all their running costs, and it's it's just not possible. So I think Medicare in terms of health systems across the world, Australia has very good health care system, but it's not a perfect system. And I think that gap that's growing is really difficult. Um, and also that the providers are, are quite stretched with admin and other things that Medicare does not cover. So then who, who covers that? Does the doctor charge that to the client who already doesn't have the money to pay their bill. So I think doctors are feeling quite stretched. We're seeing that. They're and, and they're feeling, I think, a bit frustrated. Where's this going to go? You know, is it easier just to become a TikToker? You know, you can earn a bit more money there than you can with all these years of experience. And I think that's what we are feeling. You know, you have all this professional knowledge and experience, but it's somehow not being valued and it's not it's not translating mm -hmm. um and also the thing is medicare dictates a lot of what we do even though it's not always it's not always perhaps the evidence based treatment or the way the treatment should run but if medicare chooses to pay for so many sessions or 
then people believe that's what the treatment is. But that's not necessarily the treatment. Mm -hmm. Therapy doesn't necessarily, 20 sessions is an arbitrary number. 10 sessions, it's an arbitrary number. But if they put that as the number, then we somehow think, oh, I should have 20 sessions and I should be better. No, you can have therapy for the rest of your life and still need it. But by putting these things there, they kind of dictate our beliefs of what treatment should be. And then the client can turn around and go, well, this isn't working. But maybe that's not what it was meant to be in the first place. So look, pros and cons, pros and cons. Okay, so finally, doctor, uh, so we're as, as a society are constantly plugged in. So we have our phone, we have WhatsApp, we have our pings on the laptop. Even after work, we still get pings. And, you know, this can sometimes cause a severe mental health breakdown for workers, you know, alike. So can you please give us some suggestions on how one can unplug? Mm. It's a it's the million dollar question, isn't it? I think we're all addicted to these damn devices, um, and our children probably more so. Look at it, and and I put my hand up. You know, it's 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 a nightmare, and sometimes I get so frustrated because you wish you didn't have access to all this stuff all the time. I can't let go because you know every I can see every email, every message, every everything. So I guess we have to. We have to set limits. I've set some limits for myself on social media and stuff like that, that I get that you've got, and every so often I override it, but I try and go, okay, that's it. Um, really just putting the phone off at a particular time. It's really hard. And that's when you can feel how addictive it is because it's like, oh, you know, I can't put this off, but putting it off. Um, and also monitoring the feed, monitoring what you are looking at, because some stuff is more helpful than others. Um, so really, and building your life outside, making some activities and commitments to activities that will pull you away from your phone. So I have to go for a run because I've booked that in with a friend or I'm going, um, you know, join a yoga class or something then you can't have your phone on in there. So it's it's sort of having these things or meeting with friends, maybe saying, look, let's both put our phones in the middle of the table. Let's just look at each other here and have a bit of a, a chat um, or with family. Mm. Because, I mean, even my kids, they come to the table and it's like, you know, mm. and I go, put the phone away. Let's just talk here. Mm. And um, so encouraging those sorts of things. Like I say to the kids when we drive to school, I'm not a taxi driver, put the phone away. Um, let's look around, let's look outside and, and just, so trying to be a bit strict with yourself, setting small goals and then keeping yourself accountable. But yeah, I agree. I think we're overloaded. We are so overloaded with information. It's, I don't know. I don't know where it's going to go. I don't think it's healthy and I don't think it's sustainable, this living. It's too stressful for people. Awesome, doctor. So, all right. And that is all the time that we have for today. We have just been speaking with Sydney-based psychiatrist, Dr. Lisa Myers, who is also the author of this wonderful book, When the Light Goes Out. It's the book. It yes, really it's is. The book. It's so a good I'll, read. Yes, it is. It is. So, I'll put the link and where you can get the book. And um, so, thank you so much, doctor, for your time. I really appreciate it. And this was a really good chat. Thanks, June. Have a lovely evening.
You too. Thank you. So um, that's all the uh, time that we have for today. And we have just been speaking to Dr. Lisa Myers. Thank you. Bye. Bye.